Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today we continue our series of revisiting various eras of James Bond movies and I'm once again joined by Fred Cobb to continue doing this. Fred, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me again. Very excited to continue this. And Daniel Lima. Daniel, thanks for being here. Oh, it's a joy. It's a pleasure. Yes. Love it. And today we're going to be revisiting some of a couple of the movies from the Roger Moore era of James Bond, and that includes both Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. And we're going to start first with Live and Let Die, which was the 1973 entry into the series. And as I said, it stars Roger Moore. Was it was it his first one, guys? Or That's uh, right. Yeah, it was the, the first movie. Yeah, the first of his eight movies, I believe, and he uh, seven. or seven, yeah, both he and Sean Connery did seven. I looked that up. So, first of his seven movies, it's Live and Let Die. Uh, it it kind of it's a as most of these movies do. It kind of has its own little montage to start out, where you see uh, three different MI six agents get killed under mysterious circumstances. One in New York, one in New Orleans, and one with a fictional Caribbean nation that I'm gonna uh, called San Monique, which I have some thoughts on. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, San Monique is led by a dictator known as Dr. Kanaga and, uh, James Bond is sent to New York to investigate the deaths and Kanaga happens to be there at the, uh, uh, at the United Nations. And, uh, while there Bond kind of, uh, tracks, uh, the, the license plate of a, a car that tries to take him out to a, uh, to another, uh, to a bar in Harlem where a, that, that is being run by a, a Mr. Big, it was, uh, we, as we come to find out, is played by Yafit Koto, who also portrays Dr. Kanaga, because we end up learning later in the movie they're one and the same. Spoiler alert. Uh, and this kind of takes James kind of all over the map. He ends up, you know, coming into contact with an American CIA agent uh, named Rosie Carver, played by Gloria Hendry, who is the first ever black Bond girl. And he also has to kind of deal with a, a tarot card reader named Solitaire, played by Jane Seymour, who Kanaga is kind of using within his grand scheme, which involves a lot of drugs on this fictitious Caribbean island. And there's just a lot going on. Uh, I, where I want to start first, Daniel, is one thing that this is one of the movies, as I, I talked to Fred about it when we did our first couple of Bond movies in our first podcast about a, a little more than a month ago. I saw, I, I think I actually saw both of these movies also around the same time I saw uh, from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. It's just I happened to watch all these when I was in middle school and hadn't watched them since. So I kind of started picking up on some of the plot points. But one thing I I just did not remember about uh, Live and Let Die as I watched it was like, uh, wow, I did not remember that this movie like uh, kind of really was obviously lifting and flirting a lot, lifting from and flirting with a lot of just like things that were probably going on in the black exploitation movies of that time. And it was just, it just wasn't something I remembered until I watched it again. And I, I had no idea that that was the case when I invited you to do the podcast and you're more well-versed in those movies than most people I know, but I also know you don't like this movie and I'll go ahead and say that, or I don't know, maybe you, maybe you changed your mind on your second viewing, but I knew that neither you or Fred did it the last, liked it that much the last time you watched it. And I'll go ahead and say, I, I wasn't the biggest fan, but there are like other reasons that I might not have been the biggest fan, uh, aside from like how it maybe handled some of those issues as well as how it handles this fictitious Caribbean Island. A lot of that's made me uncomfortable but at the same time i was like i don't know if i'm the person to make a definitive statement on whether or not it handled this stuff well i'll just say that i i kind of gave me a lot of pause when i saw how they handled a lot of the subject matter so daniel i'll ask you as someone who as far as i know is not a fan of this movie 
Do your reservations about this movie have anything to do with how it handles this fictitious Caribbean island or these black exploitation tropes? Or do you have wholly different reasons for uh, having or a number of critiques about Live and Let Die? Yeah, your instincts were, were correct. Your instincts were correct. This is absolutely one of the most uncomfortable Bond movies that that I've seen uh, for exactly those reasons. So Live and Let Die, you know, it's his first outing as Bond, and they're, they're clearly trying to, you know, cash in on the black exploitation craze that was going on at the time. I think this movie came out in, like, 73. Shaft came out in, like, 71. This is, like, the hype right. of the genre. Um, you know, you, it stars Yafet Kodo, who even though most people know him as, you know, the dude from Alien, uh, he and other movies, he was... Uh, Mid- Midnight Run, frequent... which I watched for the first time last week. Yeah, exactly. I, I forgot he was was in Midnight Run. But, you know, he's also like the lead, one of the leads in Across 110th Street. He's in, uh, he's the villain, one of the villains in Truck Turner. Uh, I think he's like the sidekick to Pam Greer in Friday Foster. So the dude's very experienced. His henchman, the one with the the claw, yeah. uh, Julius Harris, he was, he played the father of Black Caesar in Black Caesar and the sequel Hell Up in Harlem. Uh, he played a, actually a character called Mr. Big in Trouble Man, which was released the year before. Huh. Yeah. So, what do you know? So, what about you know, it? What, uh, what, what about it? Obviously, using this guy that had a lot of cachet at the moment. But what? What were there certain moments of this movie that kind of, like you said, made you the most uncomfortable or gave you the most reservation with how it was handling this material? I mean, basically any scene with a black person. Basically any scene with a black person. Look, <laughs> watching black exploitation, watching movies from this era, you know, of black genre films with pimps and pushers and drug dealers and this and that. You can always kind of tell when one movie was written and made by white people and when mm-hmm. one had the input of actual black people. And, you know, the, 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 the tell is usually, you know, how these people are portrayed, how much nuance are they given in a black movie for uh, in a black produced black exploitation movie. Uh, you know, even though these people are doing these awful things, even though they are, you know, engaging in the, the, the slang of the day, they're talking as black people would talk. You know, they're they're still given nuance. They're still uh, commentary on why they are in the position that they are. It's not just look at these, you know, the, it's not like look at these monkeys dance around and let's you know, it's 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 not expert. That's pretty much exactly what it is whenever they go to this Caribbean island now. Exactly. Uh, You know, you go to the Caribbean island and it's just a – there's like a voodoo cult who are just dancing around and using poison snakes to kill people. Uh, There's like these drug dealers and uh, they're just – nasty like hating white people and like it's they're they're not given any sort of uh characterization beyond the fact they are black criminals um it's it's really really cringeworthy it's even when you get to uh the most nuanced black character honestly is probably the bond girl played by gloria hendry yes and she has like like two and a half scenes (laughs) she has two and a half scenes and she's it's one of the most cringe it's cringeworthy both as like looking at her as a black actress and looking at her as an actress. Um, She's just, or just a female character. Yeah, exactly. She screams. She's incompetent. Bond like slaps her around a lot. Like he's, you know, he's, she's there as basically just a sexual object and she's useless and superstitious. Like a, like it it is a incredibly backwards image of a black woman. And it's, it's, it's awful to sit through. Yeah. I, 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 one thing I, before I go to Fred, I want to ask you, 
because even me as like a white guy who, like I said, maybe isn't the best person to be making all these comments about how it handles these black exploitation tropes. Even I was able to figure out like, okay, they literally made up this Caribbean island just so they could do offensive shit. You know, like they could, yeah. they like they, they could have called it Costa Rica or something because like it's not like they make up countries all the time in these movies. They go to real countries all the time, and it felt like they just made up a country so they wouldn't take shit for like their depiction of the people on the island. Like they could have just, you know, it could have been Costa Rica, it could have been Jamaica, it could have been whatever. But they're like, for all for all I know, they thought. For all I know, they thought that this was an actual island, and they just didn't care. Yeah, oh, there is absolutely. Okay. In the treatment of in the treatment of like Afro American religion and its depiction of Black urban life, it basically is one of the most offensive well, movies so, of the Black flotation genre, so to speak. Right, and I knew uh, enough, to, I know, and I knew enough to find all that ritual stuff like super offensive. But I'm thinking back to like the scene with the bar in Harlem, and I was like, I I, I could tell this is probably something that like at least. Uh, it's trying to be some kind of approximation of what you might see in a black exploitation movie. But as we talked about when we did the, uh, did the podcast last year on Dolomite is my name, I'm a little bit of a novice in the era. Uh, and I was going to ask you like, uh, what, 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 what would a good version of like that scene in that Harlem bar look like? Because I mean, I, it seems like your answer is probably just like giving these guys real more, these characters more depth, more so than maybe anything that was actually more, more so than anything else about them. Is, is, is that a correct uh, assessment of kind of what your problem was with how they depicted them more so than maybe just any other kind of uh, anything else that was on the screen? Yeah, I would say that it comes down to an issue of, you know, the, the other issue with this movie beyond how it treats, you know, things about race mm-hmm. and uh, urban life. I, it's just not a it's just not a good movie. It's just not a good movie. You know, uh, it, you, they get there and it's it's just like filler for Bond to go do his thing. They want to use these the aesthetics of black exploitation, but they don't want to explore what it's about. And it's it's it's. It's just discomforting. And then you get to the actual, you know, villain, Yafet Koto, one of the greatest actors, you know, of the era. Yeah. What are the worst villains in Bond, I think? Yeah, he doesn't really do anything all that cool. I mean, we're going to talk about he just like has has a plan involving drugs. And we're, we're going to talk about Man with the Golden Gun. And I think one of the things that movie has going for it is that it actually has a intriguing, charismatic villain. Uh, and, but Fred, I, I, I want to give you a chance to talk here. And, uh, if, if, if you want to echo any of what Daniel said, go ahead and do it. But I think one thing I want to ask you, because it was kind of my thoughts on this was like, I, I, cause I actually kind of wrote out a letterbox review that I didn't post yet. And my thing was going to be like, look, I, I was really uncomfortable with all this stuff with, with the black characters. I was uncomfortable with some other stuff in the movie, but like, even if I set all of that aside, like it didn't have a lot of the other positives that other Bond movies do. It could have had like a lot of those positives. It, and then all the negatives, but I didn't really find that many positives. I know before I even reached out about doing this podcast or when I first reached out to you, you said, yeah, this is not one of the good ones. So it kind of makes sense to talk about that along with one of the better ones. When, when I first like mentioned doing live and let die, what, what is your initial reaction to this movie when you think about it as to like why it doesn't work? So before I start with my own thoughts, yeah. uh, let me actually read you the quote that I started my letterbox preview with <laughs> okay. because it really encapsulates a lot of the thoughts that I think people have about this movie. So mm-hmm. this is from uh, Yafet Koto, actually. Yeah. I had to dig deep in my soul and brain and come up with a level of reality that would offset the sea of stereotype crap oh, that geez. Tom Mankiewicz wrote that had nothing to do with the black experience or culture. Oh, man. I had I, mean, I, 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 I did not do my research like he did. That's, that's wild. He actually spoke out against it like that. <sighs> 
Oh yeah, so he phrased it uh, very accurately and uh, very um, succinctly. So I think you really uh, find out everything you need to know by the mere fact that the duality of the villain here is the dictator of a banana republic and the drug dealer in Harlem. So really the two black villain stereotypes thrown into one person. <laughs> and as Daniel already said very nicely, the people behind this movie, a bunch of white guys, would all have grown up in colonial Britain. Uh, and the reason why this is especially offensive is, of course, because we live in America. And over the last couple of days and weeks, um, a lot of us have become more informed, have read about this. And of course, um, these are very systemic issues in this country that have been going on for a long time. But this is nothing new in the Bond movies. And you only live twice. Uh, Sean Connery actually has turned into an Asian guy to blend into uh, a <laughs> small village community. Oh, yeah, and he fake marries uh, an Asian girl just so he has a better cover. Oh, God. Um, and that goes all the way, of course, until uh, Die Another Day, where a bunch of North Koreans turn themselves into white dudes uh, <laughs> to suit your identities. I, I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah, so the Bond franchise has a very proud history of uh, treating minorities unflatteringly, to say the least. And I think why this particularly gets to us is, again, because it is set in America for the second time in a row, actually, Diamonds set uh, in this country, in Las Vegas, and it was also a terrible movie, but it didn't try to tackle, uh, it didn't really try to feed into any of um, the emerging genres of the 1970s. And now looking back at this, this really just seems like a very ill-advised cash grab uh, by people who had no idea what they were talking about when they made this movie. Yeah, and I want to talk about another aspect of this movie because, I mean, I, I, I feel weird not talking about, like, the actual plot of it yet, but to be honest, there's really not all that much compelling content to talk about with respect to the plot, so I'm going to talk about just my other huge problem with this movie, and that is its treatment of women. And I, I want to say, when I, you guys are maybe a little more familiar with old Bond movies than I am, and when I decided I was going to start watching old movies, I went into it very consciously being like, all right, I'm not going to try and be like super woke guy that's looking out for the women. Like I under, I'm, I'm just going to go into this with full understanding that they did not treat them well. And that was just kind of what they did in this time. And these women fall into bed with James in 30 seconds. And you just kind of have to kind of try and get past that and enjoy the rest of the movie and not be bothered by that. I, I was fully aware of that aspect of how these movies treated women. And I was just going to try and like not be like the super woke guy, like venturing into these movies of a different time while acknowledging that they had some issues with respect to that kind of treatment of women but like holy shit guys like this it, it was so <laughs> uncomfortable watching it not only from a race perspective but from a gender perspective because you already mentioned how rosie has two and a half scenes and in the first scene like within 45 seconds of when she shows up like like james like just pre tries to pressure her into having sex and it's like not only uncomfortable because like it'd be uncomfortable if that was any woman but he's kind of in a position of authority over her. While they work for different agencies, it is very clear that, like, he works for... He, he's the experienced one in the room, and she's the not-so-experienced one in the room. And he just, like, straight-up goes for it without, like, really any real uh, indication that she's into him. Like, most Bond girls do uh, make those kind of eyes towards James within the first 15 seconds. He hadn't even had that yet, and he just kind of, like, just is totally trying to go for it. And it's like, this is not good, James. Don't do that. So there's that. And then there's the other thing where it's like played off as a complete joke where he just loads the tarot card deck to trick Solitaire into sleeping with him and taking her virginity, which is super, fu <laughs> which is super <laughs> fucked yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. And 
then it just it's like oh and maybe they tried to justify it by being like oh but no that's a plot point because she can only be a virgin and have her powers which is like no that is not a good plot point that, is, that doesn't make it okay it doesn't make it make any <laughs> it also, sense it, it also doesn't make any goddamn sense no but, not, i mean it's awful it's awful like <laughs> i agree with you when i rewatched the movie i saw the tarot cards and i was like what the fuck what kind of fucked up person <laughs> does something like that but then i was like and also this makes no fucking sense. What are they even talking about? <laughs> it doesn't make it doesn't even tie into the racism. At least if you're gonna be, you know, offensive, it could be consistently offensive. For she's like they're like she's like a voodoo priestess who uses tarot cards. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't have anything to do with voodoo. What the fuck are you even talking about? Yeah, it's 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 awful, it's stupid. Um, and I know those not are not like- to mention not to mention the fact that, like I said, Gloria um is like she's just a cry, she just cries and needs Bond's help. Right. She's supposedly like a CIA agent, and yet she's right. totally incompetent. And think at one point Bond does go like, ugh, women, or something like that. It's it's uncomfortable. Yeah, and the other thing about this is that this was by no means uh, a rarity in early Bond movies. Uh, Jane Seymour was in her early 20s mm-hmm. uh, when she played Solitaire. And Roger, Roger Moore was, was like in his mid-40s, right? Yeah, which was why it was kind of strange that they decided to go for him as the new Bond, because a big reason why they decided to move on from Connery, who just was making way too much money as Bond at that point, and they couldn't afford him anymore, was that they thought he was too old. And Connery is actually three years younger than Roger <laughs> was. So it was very strange. That... Yeah, it was very strange that they decided to move on to an actor who, who went into the totally opposite direction than what they were looking for. And that just also makes it a bit more uncomfortable. And the other thing I also wanted to add about... Um, Rosie Carver, when uh, they first meet, Bond pulls this really weird prank on her where there is a dead snake in the bathroom and he knows very well that it's there and he just kind of gets a kick out of letting her go in there and then she screams and comes right on running back to him. It's just a very mean-spirited scene uh, all all around and that really didn't make it any better. Yeah, it, it's not it's not great. But you actually brought up Roger Moore being so old and I, I we have to get into I don't I can't we believe we talked this long without talking about Roger Moore. This is his first outing. What did you guys think about his portrayal of Bond? So I never particularly cared for the direction that they took it in with Roger Moore just because I was a much bigger fan of the direction they initially went in with Connery. And I even like George Lazenby's portrayal in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. A lot of people give him shit for not being a very good actor, but at the very least he brought a vulnerability to Bond that was kind of unheard of at the time. Agreed. Roger Moore was mainly cast for um, his participation in a TV show uh, where he played a character called Simon Templer, who was kind of this uh, suave uh, British dandy. And that's kind of what they wanted for James Bond as well. And it just never really fit in any of the seven movies, but it particularly doesn't fit here. And it's just a very strange counterpoint for this sort of arrogant British dude to walk around in the black community and kind of uh, act all high and mighty. It just never really clicks. I don't know. I feel like he's probably a less charismatic actor than uh, Sean Connery, but I don't, I don't know. I I don't necessarily, I I don't, I guess when I watch body movies at the same time, and again, I've, I've probably seen half as many as you guys have. I don't necessarily go expecting Bond to be the most charismatic performance I'm going to see. You know, I, I often think that's maybe more, I don't know, I sometimes think that's more going to come from the villains or maybe some of the other supporting performances, at least. I They, they all blend together. 
a little bit for me as far as like any kind of real dynamic performances I can remember from any specific Bond in any specific movie I've seen. But I actually haven't seen the Timothy Dalton or George Lazenby ones. That's probably going to be the next podcast I do with Fred and Elijah. Uh, so I'll, maybe I'll have a little bit more context for just what what a Bond performance even really is, even if those guys combined to do only three of them. I, I don't know. I, I didn't really have a strong negative reaction to him, but at the same time, it's like, all right, well, this doesn't really add anything I wasn't getting from Sean Connery. So I don't have strong opinions on him, just that like the age is noticeable, you know? I mean, and like I said, that adds to the discomfort of the whole thing where he's like, you know, romancing this 21 year old. I, again, that's not like, that's uncommon for Bond movies. I'm pretty sure Daniel Craig was a good 25 years older than Leah Sadu and, uh, in Spectre. So it's like, it's not like it's, that's, it's not like something that they've moved past or anything, but it was just extra noticeable because he tricks her into losing her virginity, which is again, really fucked up. Uh, yeah. but yeah, I guess, I don't know. I didn't really have like a, a strong reaction. Like, Oh my God, this is an awful performance. But at the same time, it wasn't a good enough performance to elevate a bad movie. And I would say maybe if you had a better actor in that role, I, I maybe I'd get a little bit more out of it, but at the same, I, at the same time, I still blame the script more than I blame Roger Moore for any problems I have with this movie. So, yeah, I, I this was the first, actually, uh, Roger Moore movie that I had seen, uh, uh, well, yeah, Roger Moore Bond that I had seen. And uh, in my original review, I wrote that he played Bond with the charisma, daring, and sheer magnetism of a middle manager from South Dakota. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I stand by that. He is, I mean, Fred did, you know, make, make a good point in that, you know, he's this kind of like, you know, swat, stiff upper lip kind of Brit who's kind of holier than thou. He's above it all. And like he's wandering on the black community acting like this towards black people. And it's it's a little discomforting to see this colonialist. It, co- it comes across a very colonialist. But more than that, I think he's just he's just nothing. He just he's just he he he's nothing. He's like the manager of a box store. I, I don't feel anything coming from him now. Uh, in future movies, I've grown to like Roger Moore more. Um, at this point, I think I would call his era of Bond my favorite. But really? here, he's still just kind of feeling out the character. They're trying to decide where to take him. And he has to do it within this convolute. I mean, like, look, most Bond movies are globetrotting, kind of complex affairs. They're spy movies. I get it. I don't even... The, the villain wants to sell uh, opium, I think, right? He wants to sell heroin. He wants to sell heroin. And that's basically it. And in a way, it's kind of refreshing to see like a Bond villain with such a low-ass goal. He doesn't want to ransom a country for, you know, $100 million. He just wants to sell some dope. But um, it's, you know, in within this like weird convoluted he has these he has two identities and it takes place over and they have to go to new orleans for some reason i'm still not sure yeah i'm still not sure why they went to new orleans i well for more racism you know they already got that (laughs) racism in new york they got that racism in the caribbean they need to get some louisiana racism um and like yeah it's just not it's just not a good plot i've got a quick question about the scenes in new orleans by the way so i really do wonder about those funeral marches so the first time, it's kind of a fun gimmick where they place the coffin over the guy and then pick him back up and they start... Yeah, that's actually... It's that was actually cool, yeah. Yeah, so the first one was great. But then the sec- that happens again the second time. So I just kind of wonder, are all of those people complicit in the murders? Do they know what's going on? <laughs> Did they stage one of those funeral marches yeah, every single time they want to kill I, someone outside of the restaurant? I think I'd that it is like there. I think that it is like that's part of like the people on the take. Just like there's like a random cab driver who like... 
he drives Bond in New York and you find out he's within the organization. And then suddenly he's over in in New Orleans, also working as a cab driver. I, I just think figured the, they're all on Big's payroll. Yeah, they're, they're all people on his payroll. So that's one, what I gathered. One, one more thing I'll say about Roger Moore. I, I, I don't know. It didn't. Maybe maybe it would hit me. Now that I heard you guys say that, maybe it would strike me differently if I watch it again, though I have no desire to watch this movie again. But I I didn't necessarily— get better. Yeah, I guess, yeah, this was your second viewing, too. Uh, but I, I didn't necessarily think when he first walked into that Harlem bar that he was acting like he owned the place. Like, I, I didn't get that kind of vibe from him. And maybe that's because he didn't even have the—he he just wasn't a very charismatic performance. But I actually laughed when that happened because I just, like, got a real big kick out of the visual of, like, James Bond in a Harlem bar. Like, he's, like— <laughs> One of the most. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm with everyone who's be, who'd be down to have a black James Bond as our next James Bond. But I mean, let's let's be real though. At this point, like, it's the one of the whitest characters in pop culture. And I just, I, I got a real kick out of watching him just walk into a Harlem bar. Like, it looked like more of a fish out of water to me than like a guy trying to act like he belonged. And I will say to that note, yeah, there is. Uh, I, you, what what good things do you have to say about the movie? Oh, I mean, honestly, I had like a list of like seven bullet points, really. And <laughs> I and, and no, no, not and like just total. And the only really positive one I had was love the visual of Bond walking into Harlem Bar. And I, that, I, I, I came to make that point and I, I, I legitimately laughed. I was like, I just I just got to I, I laughed out loud watching this in my room by myself on a Saturday morning of him just like the whitest guy ever walking into Harlem Bar. And I mean, I'm sure that's not a unique thing in pop culture, but I got to kick out of this white guy walking into a Harlem Bar. And I did not have another positive thing to say about this movie. I because the next thing I was going to ask you about was like just the rest of this movie. And like I, my whole point was that yeah, we just talked about all the bad stuff for the last twenty five minutes. And I maybe would have still found some other redeeming stuff in this movie if it had some like really cool action. But it like devotes literally thirty minutes of its move of the of its runtime to a boring ass boat chase. Uh, and yeah, like Bond has done boat chases before and since that have been more compelling than this one. I think it's due to the length. It's also due to the fact that they've got that comic, awful, 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 awful comic relief character of the Southern. And we're going to have to talk about him again in a few minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So it's like, I don't know. It felt like that was like that. They got all this awful shit out of the way that we already talked about. Like at that point in the movie, you've already dealt with this problematic race stuff. It's dealt with this problematic stuff about women. And once they get down to that part of the movie, it's like, okay, maybe you guys can redeem yourself a little bit and give us something exciting to watch. That boat chase is boring as shit. And it's not a very creative solution to the alligator farm sequence. Like it's just like, oh, he just runs on top of them and like figures it out in 10 seconds. All right. Although I will say that stunt was actually performed for the movie. Apparently, uh, they just coincidentally, that scene was total coincidence. They stumbled upon one of those crocodile farms uh, when they were shooting, and the farm was apparently owned by a guy named Kananga. Oh. So they were so, uh, they were so thankful to him uh, that he allowed uh, them to shoot on his property that they named uh, their villain after him. And, and he was actually the guy who performed that stunt, apparently, of running over those crocodiles. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, that whole sequence, I'm not necessarily like, it doesn't save the movie. But I will say that even though, like, on paper, just running across crocodiles isn't that impressive, like, you, there's an actual man running across live crocodiles. That's, I, I gotta give 
okay some amount of protein. i did not i did not realize that both okay i didn't realize that those were actual like, i didn't realize that was an actual real stunt on top of real crocodiles i guess i assumed in the moment that that was somehow fake so i guess it's kind of no, cool no, to- no that was a real yeah that's a real run yeah and beyond that even the boat chase there is impressive stuff being done and- you know like, there's boats jumping around and things are blowing up and cars are crashing it's impressive from a technical standpoint also i must note that one of the stuntmen for this movie i forget his name right now uh it escapes me but he was actually uh, a black stuntman who founded the black stuntmen's association in hollywood he was uh he was an extra on um it's a mad 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 world and he realized there was no black stuntman for the black actor and he was like, no, nah, I'll do it. And Good from there, he started a stunt career and, you know, start, formed an organization to help other black people break into stunt work. It's, you know, so, so one and, so one good thing came out of this movie. The other thing yeah. I will say, the other thing eat. I will say about the boat chases, and I think we kind of take this for granted nowadays, a lot of really exciting action is generated by the choice of music that is being played hmm. during that boat chase. There's, there's no music. There's no music whatsoever. And the reason for that is actually kind of funny. So apparently the music department blew all of their budget on hiring Paul McCartney to write and perform their theme song, <laughs> which to be fair is a fantastic theme song, but it's, they I actually ran out of music to hire an actual composer. So they hired uh, this guy who was apparently Paul McCartney's music producer who had never composed for a movie before and would never again. <laughs> and George Martin? He, George, George Martin? And oh shit! The Fifth Beetle. Mm-hmm. Oh damn! But actually, so George Martin had never composed for a movie before, and I think I don't even know how long the actual score is, but it really kind of added up to that much because not only is there not a ton of music during the boat chase, but barely at all during the movie, actually. So it shows, like some of the more, like I said, some of the most exciting stuff is really amplified by good musical cues. And those are just absent here. Yeah. I I'm honestly, glad you brought that up. Yeah. I, I did notice that on second rewatch and then I completely forgot about it. Yeah. You're right. It's, it's, it's like you're watching just something happen and you're like, all right, I could be on YouTube right now. It doesn't <laughs> feel like, it doesn't feel like a movie that's trying to sell you on the excitement. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I didn't even, I, that didn't even jump out to me as I was watching. And now that I think about it, that who knows, that could have been part of why that sequence was just, it felt like it took 30 minutes and i mean honestly that's, yeah. that's probably not that much of an it, it probably did take 20 but it felt longer and it just was not really all that compelling and i'm someone that does appreciate when i mean actually i don't have that i don't did they did they did they, did they actually film in louisiana i don't have that up in front of me um, yeah yeah they did. did they did yeah, and i'm so and I, as people that listen to me talk about movies know like i do appreciate when movies shoot on location and look really good and it's kind of cool like I guess it is a cool visual when that boat jumps up on that that really big backyard in that um, that Bayou Estate or whatever it is, and I mean that's something that would normally really give me a lot of satisfaction. And I I can kind of acknowledge it's a cool visual at the moment, but in the or I can kind of retroactively acknowledge it was a cool visual, but right now it's I mean it just did not give me that much satisfaction as I was watching it, and I I I don't know it just like. I, I kind of li- I like looking at stuff like that when someone authentically shoots in a place like the Bayou of Louisiana, and it just was not doing it for me, and I just got really bored. And I was that was the part of the movie I was hoping was going to kick into another gear for me after I didn't enjoy the first hour and twenty minutes or whatever. And yeah, I don't know, Daniel. Any other thoughts on this movie that I didn't talk touch on that I need, didn't ask you about? One more thought. Yeah. Uh, um, 
the final scene is actually like a train fight that's clearly like a callback to uh, for Russia with love. Yes, you know it's James Bond fighting um, the the hook hand guy, um, Julius Harris, Julius Harris, and like it's 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 decent, it's decent, and that's probably one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah, I don't know, just Fred. Fred decent. Did, just decent. <laughs> Fred, did you have any other thoughts on on either that last scene or something else we didn't touch on yet? That special effect of Kananga getting blown up has aged horribly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good God. Like, you can even see uh, when he flies up to the ceiling that oh, uh, it's the a picture dun- gets all grainy, and you can very clearly see that it's some kind of puppet that they inflated. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I honestly totally forgot to bring that up. And, yeah, that's that, that and the boat chase. I mean, those are, those are the two big moments that this movie has after being basically an hour and 20 minutes of blah. And... Honestly, it feels like it whiffed on both, and I don't know. And even aside from that visual, even if that visual hadn't been like laughably bad, it just wasn't anything all that dynamic and interesting. I guess I, I forgot. Are, are there are there sharks in that tank, or there's more gators? I can't even remember. Um, there's sharks. Okay, there's sharks. sharks. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because he has a shark gun. Oh, right. uh, uh, you see, they they set it up. Uh, uh, <laughs> he, he, wait, I, shoot, I, I oh, man, I, I just missed my chance to make a joke about. Batman 66, as I told Daniel, I watched last week. What it, oh, it's a shark repellent in that movie, right? Ah. Uh, yeah. They should have had some, they should have had some, they should have had some shark repellent. They could have just like totally lifted that. that. Yeah. This was seven years later. They could have figured that out. And that would have been a, that, <laughs> that would have at least made me laugh, even if I thought it was a total ripoff. But instead, it was just like, I don't know, Bond, like, is able to, like, use his, uh, uh, uses what he has like a watch or is it the magnet thing to like just yeah, cu- yeah. cut himself off somehow and then he just jumps off like it's nothing and then the the movie's over i mean i i don't know it's uh or and then he has the the the, the gas gun right the gas pellets um yeah that's the shark that's yeah, a shark gun yeah oh oh that's a shark thing where they have the gas in it okay yeah um yeah so um i don't know it just it, it was very weird and not all that well executed in my opinion and i don't know it's just like if you're gonna have like your movie just be so offensive and bad for like an hour and 20 minutes at least give us some kick-ass action and it kind of failed in that department too i don't know yep um all right guys well i guess we're ready to move on to the man with the golden gun now that we've uh got all gotten all the negativity out of the way for the podcast <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll say i think the man with the golden gun's a good movie i don't really know i mean both of you guys kind of like intimated that you agreed when I, we were trying to talk about doing this podcast and it was just like yeah, I don't know. This is probably one of the better ones from that era. And I thought I was going to have like some really sharp takes, but I'm like, you know, this movie just like gets gets done when it has to get done. And I didn't really find it really all that. Uh, I, I didn't have like any hangups, you know, like, I mean, I, I had these big hangups that we just talked about with live and let die. And I'm like, this is just a movie that like goes in and out and does its thing. And, you know, I, I don't know, like it's funny. Daniel and I just talked a, a, a couple weeks ago about like Kung Fu movies and that kind of thing. And I mean, I guess there was maybe some, um, there was even maybe some opportunity for it to like poorly handle some of the cultural aspects of this movie in that regard, like it did with live and let die. But I actually kind of really liked that digression in this movie. And I, and maybe I was like kind of bracing myself to not do that. But I, I don't know. I, I just found that it's a pretty good movie, and I'd say the biggest thing that I would have to say about it is that it has a good villain. And we just kind of talked about how it kind of screws that up in Living Let's Die. It's funny because The Man with the Golden Gun came out in 1974, and it so it was like a year after this one. Also had Tom Mankiewicz as the writer and Guy Hamilton as the director, so it kind of kept the same team in place that they just had. And yeah, I mean, obviously, it's like we just talked about, maybe these white dudes are just going to struggle with trying to like rip off black exploitation movies and maybe just uh, getting away from that. It was bound to get better 
but I don't know. I, I, I really enjoyed this movie and Fred, I'll, I'll let you go first since I went to Daniel first on the last movie. Uh, what, what do you like about the man with the golden gun? So the first thing I would say is, uh, when you said you were wondering if there were going to be hot takes about this movie, uh, Liking this movie is a bit of a hot take, actually. Yeah, I, I, I didn't say, realize that because both of you yeah. guys liked it. And I went back and looked, and apparently it was actually kind of frowned upon at the time. Yeah, I get the sense that this is not a very popular movie. It, it definitely wasn't back then. It wasn't well-reviewed at all. And even today, a lot of people aren't too hot on it. And I will say it has a lot of very obvious flaws uh, that I thought became this time around when I was watching it. But the fact that it does have a fantastic villain and some really great locations... Uh, I think it goes a long way towards redeeming some of those issues. Christopher well, Lee, uh, who people obviously know nowadays from his appearance in Star Wars and <laughs> Lord of the Rings, and basically him playing any horror, horror character that was ever invented, um, he's just a very charismatic, uh, sinister, sophisticated guy uh, who brings a lot of gravitas to this part. You really get the sense that even though he says to Bond that he doesn't have anything against him personally, that this is a very personal rivalry that plays out throughout the movie because he even has a statue of Bond in his personal maze on his <laughs> island in the South Pacific. Before they even meet. Yeah. Before they even, yes, exactly. So clearly Scaramanga is somebody who takes pride in being the best at what he does. I mean, guy charges a million dollars per shot. So In 1974, yeah. Yeah, so clearly the guy has a ton of confidence in what he does, and the idea that there is somebody out there who might be better than him, even though he's Bond is obviously not a contract killer but works for the government, uh, that doesn't sit well with Scaramanga. So I really like also that they don't meet for a long time, and Bond doesn't even realize what he looks like. It just adds a very strong air of mystery, and it gives Scaramanga a lot of credibility as this anonymous guy who's kind of lurking in the shadows. So... I really think it does a great job setting up that rivalry. So when they do actually meet and for that final scene on the island, it feels earned. And I think the man with the golden gun really can take pride in having created one of the greatest uh, Bond villain dynamics, uh, definitely of the Roger Moore era, and I would say of the entire Bond franchise. Yeah, Daniel, uh, why does this movie work for you? Well, first off, he is absolutely right. The best part, and you, the best part of this movie is the fact that you have this wonderful foil of Bond in Christopher Lee. Both assassins, both the best at what they do, uh, one for private industry, one for, you know, the government, one for, you know, the betterment of society, one for the betterment of his paycheck, you know, of his mm -hmm. bank account. It, it, they, 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 make a fantastic interplay. I love the little detail that for no reason Scaramanga has a third nipple. It does nothing. <laughs> it does nothing for the character other than just distinguish him a little bit even physically from other men. It's 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 lovely. I love. But beyond that, this is where Moore's run starts to find its swing in my opinion. You know, this is them cashing in on kung fu movies, you know, setting the moot action in Asia, you know, having all these martial artists show up. Although, from my understanding, most of these people are not actually martial artists, like the uh, the Hong Kong cop that turns out to be a British asset who does kung fu in the movie. He learned it for the movie, oh. you know, like he was not. Yeah, he's not like a big martial artist or anything like that. And I wish that you would see you would have seen more, you know taking in like Hong Kong action talent into this movie in the same way that uh, there's a lot of black exploitation stars in um, Live and Let Die. Well, but yeah. 
But um, yeah, I, this actually does start to embrace that like very silly B movie energy that came to define the Moore era, and I found it super refreshing, especially after I had seen Live and Let Die. Well, let me ask you then, because uh, just as you are more well versed in black exploitation, as anyone listened to our podcast a few weeks ago, you're also more well versed in kung fu movies than I. You basically recommended kung fu movies for like 12 minutes in a row without me speaking on the podcast. So I think people, <laughs> I, I think, I think people, I think that's not it's not much of an exaggeration. So I think people know that. And I, I want to know, like, I, I I didn't see you make a weird face when I made that comment before. So would you agree with the assertion that it it pays tribute to kung fu in a much uh, more respectful way than Living Let Die does to black exploitation. Well, I'm inclined to say yes. Admittedly, I am not an Asian man and I am a black man. So right. and I want and I do want to point out that there are still some, you know, questionable stuff about race and women, as usual in a Bond movie. But I, I never found it as overt or like in your face as in uh yeah. that other movie in the movie previous to this also funnily enough this movie i don't know if you intended this uh josh but this is the second more outing so like we did like his first two back to back yeah 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 um i did not know that i i think i happened to see them like back to back when i first watched yeah. them so yeah that works out real nicely so yeah i i think that this is where the, the, it starts to find its groove it feels like a big budget B movie. Honestly, you have these like big Kung Fu brawls. I do think that, uh, I wish the action was like a bit better, but honestly for a Western martial arts movie in 1974, when, you know, I think when does enter the dragon come out like 72, like, I think that it actually, the action is, is, is surprisingly decent. It does kind of like, it's more, uh, Bruce Lee than like Shaw brothers, which I think is, it's a little worse, but you know, whatever it's decent action. Uh, the stunts are, I think more impressive and better. Uh, the, the sequences are more cleverly designed. Like I love that funhouse sequence in uh, Scaramanga's mansion with bond. It feels like a, almost like a, a say, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I apologize, but Seijun Suzuki, the Japanese director from the sixties, um, Japanese new wave stuff. It feels very influenced by him. Like they're taking a lot of swings, pulling it from a lot of influences in order to make something wholly unique within the Bond franchise, uh, and I love that. Yeah, Fred, uh, how did you think the, uh, the action in this movie stacked up to other Bond movies of the year? Uh, well, there was another not particularly exciting boat chase in this one. I'm not really sure I would even call it a boat chase. It's significantly shorter. You mean, the, you, mean, you, you mean the car chase? No the, no, the boat chase, when he escapes from the school. And he's in like oh, a little yeah, wooden yeah, boat. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. I, I will admit, and, I, and, yeah, I, and then that, yeah, then that little Asian boy comes on to sell him the uh, elephant, and he just throws him off. Yeah, it's not great. Gets the that part's not great, but I actually do appreciate the fact that a that boat, that little boat chase is significantly shorter, and b they at least break up the action with like you know, uh, like you know, <laughs> Bond can't get the boat to actually work, and then this kid comes on, and he has to get this to actually work uh it, it, you know they break up up with like little moments of levity that i found very refreshing sure, did, sure. well then of course you have sheriff pepper show up again oh and, god so the question Look. i have so the question i have is why yeah oh, there's actually an answer for that oh. um guy hamilton the director of these both these two bond movies he just um, loves he, he just actually, loves rednecks he, he just loves he, rednecks no, he actually really really liked that guy from the first movie and he asked the screenwriter for this one if he could like find a way to write him in and they did and it's 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 all he's look he's still not funny and 
uh, he's even more offensive. I've also forgot about this. He he calls every minority that he runs into any non-white person I should say that he runs into boy. He never calls Bond boy, you know, <laughs> like it, and like it, it's it, anytime he shows up, it gets very uncomfortable, very quick. I don't like him. I don't like the character. That being said, I at least it's at least he's easier to swallow here, I think, because, you know, he's playing off of Bond, who clearly has no respect for him either. <laughs> so I I at least managed to stomach him a little bit wetter here. And I also prefer the the car chase is actually fairly impressive. There's at one point they do like a actual like course corkscrew jump in the car where the car turns 360 degrees in the air. And it's it's a real car. They actually did. That. Oh, I, okay. I didn't realize that. So that's cool knowing that now. But I was going to say that I thought that car chase was bordering on basically becoming that boat chase. But that flip was like way cooler than anything that happened in the boat chase in Live and Let Die. And I would agree on uh, Sheriff. What's the, what's his fucking name? I, I'm Pepper. Forgetting. Pepper. Sheriff. J-W yes. W. Pepper. Yeah. Every, <laughs> J- I, I, I kind of agree with Daniel on that. Like. I was really upset when he first showed up in this movie, but at a certain point in the car chase, it felt like we were allowed to, we were supposed to be laughing at him as opposed to laughing with it, with him. And I was like, kind of, all right, like they kind of get this guy's ridiculous and they kind of get what the joke is supposed to be. And he really doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And at a certain point I kind of just laughed at him and it was like, okay with it. But I was just like, Oh my God, why do we have to go do this again? That was and fine. I will say, okay. added from 2020, of course, uh, there's a major difference between, a racist cop chasing after a bunch of black people in the Louisiana Bayou and a racist tourist in Asia getting involved <laughs> with bonds. Like obviously, yeah. like obviously, those are two very different things from today's context. And he's definitely easier to stomach in The Man with the Golden Gun than Live and Let Die right. when you see it from that point of view. Right. So if, if he doesn't add any particular value to those scenes and he isn't especially funny, um, yes, he definitely isn't used as egregiously here, even if, of course, every, everything that comes out of his mouth is just as racist and uh, insufferable uh, here as it was in Live and Let Die. Yeah, it's just, it's just very weird that they seem to get a kick out of, like, just... Well, they get the, got a kick out of the racist... Uh, by the way, real quick. Yeah. What? Speaking of offensive characters, I, I'm not sure how to feel about the fact that I that I like Knickknack so much. I love Knickknack. I'm sorry. I love Knickknack. Knickknack is the henchman of Scaramanga. He's sort yeah, of his yeah. manservant slash like uh, th- personal thug. He is an Asian man with dwarfism. I'm not sure if that's Are the we correct. sure? Okay, good. So, I'm, um, so he's not taller than me because I was very distraught to find out when Fred and I did the podcast on uh, Goldfinger that uh, Oddjob is actually taller than me. <laughs> yeah um no uh he's actually a dwarf this guy this guy this guy yeah he does have, okay. he's afflicted with dwarfism i don't know the correct nomenclature i apologize for anyone listening if i got it wrong but um you know yes there is a lot of like making light of his height and uh you know it, it, i can understand somebody being a little discomforted by the character i found though that he's given a lot more agency than you would expect from this sort of henchman role especially from a henchman role not to mention you know his race and you know uh he is very capable he's portrayed as capable he's portrayed as a threat he is in some ways even though he plays a subservient role to Scaramanga, like it's all he has almost like a Sith philosophy about it, where he's trying to find someone to kill Scaramanga 
mm-hmm. and to, 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 you know, on Scaramanga's orders in order to find someone his equal and like he will get something out of it. Like there's there's he's a devious, intelligent criminal equal to Scaramanga. I, I actually rather liked him and I like that performance. Yeah. Fred, did you like Nick Because I actually have a thought on him, too. Yeah, I agree with what Daniel said. It's fascinating that he has that strange conflict of interest. And he's very blatant about it, too. Scaramanga clearly knows that Nick has some motivations to uh, want to see him die because he's going to inherit everything. And in that pre-credit scene, Nick is very blatant about sometimes making life more difficult for Scaramanga when he's trying to kill the guy that uh, came to his island. Um, The other thing I want to say about Nick and the actor in particular... I find it kind of fascinating uh, looking at the duo of Scaramanga and Nicknack because a few years later, Fantasy Island premiered, uh, which most people nowadays know as that horrible Bloomhouse remake that <laughs> came out. Oh, yeah. He's from, oh, he's the guy who says the line that is. The plane. It's the plane. Yeah, it, it probably, that's racist, right? I haven't seen the show. <laughs> that's, that's racist, but, but it, right? But I will say the, the thing about that show is it's very clearly based on Scaramanga's and Nicknack's relationship, even though I've never actually seen that confirmed anywhere. Because when you look at pictures of Ricardo Montalban and Hervey Villachez standing next to each other in costume, they look very similar to Scaramanga and Nicknack. And the premise is even kind of similar, too. They're on an island in the tropics. Sometimes they don't leave a lie. Always all, all the resources in the world at their disposal. Mm. Yep, exactly. So um, clearly this was uh, a duo that people found fascinating and they were inspired by down the road to make this TV show. Um, And I do think it's one of the greater, we talked about this in For Goldfinger, that the main villain henchman pairing is very distinctive in a lot of Bond films and very important to the whole uh, uh, relationship that the, and I think that the man with the golden gun does it particularly well where both characters uh, are well-developed enough that um, they pose that genuine threat to Bond. Yeah, I will agree that I thought they were very efficient in how they gave Nick his own motivations. My one qual- my one quibble with that part of the movie where, you know, at the end when he kind of helps Bond out in hunting down uh, Scaramanga where he's like, oh, yeah, I'll get everything he has, is that my bigger – one of my – like one of my only big nitpicks of this movie is when Scaramanga kills High Fat and is like, all right, now I take over your empire. I own everything. And it's just kind of like, okay, and that's it. Hey, come on. It's a silly be- – like I said. I get it. It's kind of, I get it. Movie. I shouldn't get held up on the details, but we're supposed to believe that this high fat is like this big Chinese businessman that has this vast empire. And then all of a sudden one hitman can put a bullet in his head and all of a sudden it assumes control of everything. And I was just like, okay, that seems a little easy for you there, Scaramanga. And then it's then it's mostly equally easy for uh, Nick Nack to just take over everything if you die too. It's like I would like to. Well, think- I mean, it, all right. Well, first off, the Nick Nack thing. I think it, I think the assumption is that it's in his will that Nick Nack would get everything. As for the other the other scene, I mean, I'm with you, but a silly B movie and B. Yeah. The scene where he does it is cool as hell. He's he, the, the the businessman is like admonishing Scaramanga for his failures, and Scaramanga's just, <laughs> just put his gun putting together. together his gun, and then he's like, "All right," and then he plugs him. Yeah. It's wonderful, and you know, Christopher Lee plays it perfectly. Now, what do you think of uh, Roger Moore's performance in this one, Fred? Oh, is that, that a question to me or yeah. Josh? Do you want to go Fred, first? Fred, you go first because I'm still pretty mad on him in general. Fred, did you have any? distinct thoughts on how he did differently in this versus live and let die i do but let me come 
back to the previous topic very quickly because yeah. I do want to say something about that scene with high fat because the weird thing about him assuming control of his business empire is we never really see the consequences of that. It's never really brought back into the movie. All Scaramanga does is he takes the Solex with him and that's pretty much it. Like he never actually does anything with those new powers. So I didn't mind that particular scene. Well, we, we we found out what he was going to do with the new powers. I guess like you know he wanted to like kind of grab control of the solar energy source and then get paid off by oil sheiks to not use it, which I thought was uh, kind at least kind of it. Like I don't know. I guess kind of a smart plan. I will have- say that this is this is when the movie is like trying to tie in the then current energy crisis into uh-huh. the film, and I I, I don't think it's it's very effective as if. It's Certainly not as affected as just Scaramanga's duality with Bond or the Kung Fu stuff. It's funny, so. kind of funny how like I've talked now three of the four Bond movies I've talked about with Fred and in Goldfinger it was oh we're gonna spoil all the world's gold supply so then you have to uh, th- then you have to get the gold that I have was what that villain was gonna do and in Live and Let Die it was oh we're gonna uh, flood the heroin market and now you'll have to buy <laughs> my heroin when everyone else is out of business and now it's like all right now I'm gonna have all the energy and now I control the energy. It's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's a well of, they return to. It's yes. a well they yes. return to a lot and yes. you know. What? Um, that's fine by me. That's fine by me. Yeah, yes, I mean, but let me let me get back to your question about yeah, Roger yeah. Moore, though. Uh, I kind of sidetracked us here. So I think that, and I think this is largely due to Scaramanga being such a vital part of this movie. I think Christopher Lee and Roger Moore really kind of amplify each other's performances. They complement each other, and I think Roger Moore meets the moment very well, actually, where uh, you get the sense that he's more comfortable in his shoes, that uh, he is actually... Um, like he's almost kind of offended that he got this bullet that somebody is challenging him and you get the sense that he reacts very poorly and he very aggressively pursues Scaramanga. He doesn't really even get M's official authorization initially. M just kind of says, you know, if you find him first, that would change the situation dramatically. Yeah. So Bond kind of takes that as, okay, so all that really means is I have to somehow figure out what the guy looks like and then I have to take him out. So I think more, even though he will never quite be as gritty or as just, I hate to use the word, but masculine as Sean Connery, which is how James Bond was initially envisioned. I think this is definitely a more short performance by Roger Moore. And even though the movie does get kind of silly sometimes, I think he also does add some more serious notes to the character that I think really behoove him in this particular uh particular scenario yeah i was gonna say before you actually went there that i i did i did have a recollection of that scene uh with m and i i kind of liked that uh you kind of saw him being like all right cool i get to go off the grid yeah i'll i'll do that that's that's a fun little challenge for me and i kind of like doing that and doing something a little you know you know below the belt off the books however you may call it and i so i i remember that and that did feel a little different from anything else we saw in live and let die and but another thing on top of that that i did feel like felt different from other things we saw in live and let die was that the way he just kind of goes and just totally uh blows up the spot of the gunmaker in uh in macau and I, and I was like, man, like this guy is just genuinely happy to meet you, Bond, and you're just going to totally fuck with him. And that felt a little more sinister than anything we saw Bond do in Live and Let Die, the uh, questionable uh, tarot card trick aside, uh, and the uh, pressuring Carver into having sex with him. Setting aside the way he treats the women, as far as just like him operating within the uh, course and scope of his employment as a spy, him like going, uh, doing something that like kind of, uh, you know, 
sneaky and like threatening to kill uh, by the standards of most of the characters innocent gunmaker was like okay well I see where you're going a little darker with this and Roger Moore is maybe having a little more fun with this kind of being showing a slightly different side of him and I, I would kind of agree there and that it's maybe not as straightforward as everything we see from him in the first movie yeah like I I actually kind of I kind of agree, kind of disagree with you uh, on that. He's like uh, bringing more seriousness to the role than in his first outing. I actually think that this is where he starts to realize, oh, these are silly, silly movies. I can be silly too. I, and he, like when he grabs I, the bullet out of the belly dancer's <laughs> with his uh, mouth. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I think that um, in this movie, he starts to. He's, his interpretation of the Bond character is that this is a, you know, super competent agent of the British government. He knows that he's better than just about anybody else, and he's kind of amused by it. So when he goes through to the uh, to the Macau gunsmith's uh, spot and he's trying to interrogate him to figure out where he could find Scaramanga, you know, it's a very cold-blooded thing that he's doing. He's threatening him with his own gun. Like, you know, he's kind of firing test shots and going, oh, no. You're right. The sights are a little bit off, you know, and he's playing it as like it's a big joke. Uh, I I do like what you said, that he was taking he took like Scaramanga's challenge as like a personal affront. But the way he goes about it is different than, say, Timothy Dalton's bond would have gone about it. Oh, yeah. But that's an extreme. That's an extreme. That's an extreme. That's an extreme. But even like Craig, even like Connery, Connery was always kind of cool, kind of suave. You know, he can do violence, but he's always kind of controlled in like a steely, cold way. And with Roger Moore, I think that his approach to the job is that he's doing all these things with a sort of like amused air, like a sort of I'm better than this kind of air. And I find that very uh, entertaining. Yeah, I think I think he strikes the balance better in this one. And I think maybe even better than any of his other subsequent movies. Because yeah. I, I do think, think that, because I do think that's the seriousness I was alluding to. It's not the same seriousness as Sean Connery would bring to the part, let alone it's Timothy Dalton or Daniel Craig. But I think the word confidence that you used is very accurate. To, no, not confidence, sorry. Competence is very important too, because to me, the Roger Moore era was always a little bit too silly because a lot of times it felt like it wasn't really the traditional embodiment of James Bond anymore. It had moved so far away from what the franchise was initially about that it was barely recognizable. But I think in this particular movie, even though it's a very different interpretation than other Bond actors, he is very recognizable as James Bond, I think. And that really makes that particular performance very endearing to me. Yeah, I'm with, I actually, I, I, I like it when they get silly. Like, I think Moonraker is one of the best Bond movies out there. I do oh, like wow. it when it gets silly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I I, you guys so agreed wrong. on the two we're talking about today, but then Daniel throws out something that Fred just disagrees with. <laughs> no, I I love it. I love it. I love 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 it. But I do. I, I'm with you in that when it li- leans too much into camp, it then just kind of falters because you don't have the, uh, the 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 edge of the Bond character to kind of you know like I I like it when it leans a little bit more, but some entries go a little bit too far here. Yes, he is still kind of getting the essence of like a competent British agent. In a way, it's actually kind of, uh, you know how I said that he's kind of like a middle manager in Live and Let Die. I think that that actually, he carries that forward through his tenure. He is still the middle manager, but he's 
you know, he's he treats his like very dangerous, high risk career as if he were a middle manager. <laughs> I think that in, while he's very boring in Live and Let Die in the future, the fact that he's treating all these like, you know, proceedings, all these supervillains and secret sex secret agents and like killers and assassins, he's treating this world with all the import of like running a target. I think it actually <laughs> led something to the character. Like I also enjoyed like uh Scaramongo especially calls him a middle manager uh when they're at that last meal uh with the two of them in Good Night where he's like, Yeah, you know, like you're I'm making so much more money than you, you know, you're just kinda like small potatoes compared to me. You're getting a government salary, I'm getting a million dollars a kill. And it's like, Oh, that's kinda funny to think about Bond, who we always think of someone as like kind of trafficking in very nice things and being very suave is actually like, you know, uh has a rather modest uh a modest standard of living compared to this guy. And I think that's actually a theme that carries forward in a lot of other Bond movies, where a lot of times the villain will almost extend that invitation to Bond, where he'll say, you're great at what you do. Why are you working for the British government? Come work for me instead. Like we would make such a great team, and then Bond, of course, always refuses and kills the guy. And I kind of, um, and, and I like how uh, Scaramanga just approaches him like that, where he, like, we, you guys already talked about this a little bit, but he just kind of sees him as a peer that's just at a different point in his career, where yeah, I don't, he really genuinely does not want to kill him. I think at first, I mean, I think he likes the ch- idea of the challenge of doing it, but he also likes being in the presence of someone that he kind of considers an equal because he doesn't come into contact with such people all that often. And mm-hmm. he is, uh, and he, he's just very excited to like be around him. It reminded me of the, of the interaction at the, at the end of, uh, at the end of John Wick three, where the Mark Descascos character <laughs> yeah, is just yeah, like yeah, yeah, really yeah. happy just to hang out with John Wick. And that, and I immediately thought of that when I saw just the way that Scaramongo is handling himself around Bond, it's like, he's just excited to be around someone that he kind of considers an equal and doesn't like, yeah, he likes the idea of being the guy to take him off the map, but at the same time he likes kind of being in his presence. And I kind of, yeah. I kind of like that, uh, that, uh, that little kind of, uh, push and pull that they have there. Yeah, Fred, uh, at the start, actually, when we started talking about this, I think that you had said that Scaramanga, you know, has a sort of some sort of animosity towards Bond or maybe not in those words. I think that Scaramanga, you know, of course, he sees Bond as like a worthy opponent, a rival, and he was he'll be fine with killing him. But I think he also he does like Bond. I think there is a Mm -hmm. kind of he has a more positive view of Bond than Bond has of him. Yeah, I think it's almost a friendly rivalry, at least from his side. Uh, yeah, from his side. And it's it makes it so much better. It just makes uh-huh. it so much better watching them interact because of it. Yeah, I think that covers most of the stuff about Scaramanga. What I would like to talk about very briefly, because we haven't really touched on it yet, uh, the Bond girls. Yeah, I was going to ask about that before we finished up. You yeah, know, I, honestly, they didn't, I, I can't, I, I, they kind of left my mind already. So refresh me. Well, so... Mary, Mary Goodnight is another very problematic uh, portrayal of the stereotypical dumb blonde who gets everything wrong, who makes things more difficult for Bond, who's slow to catch on. Um, and then, of course, there's that scene where they're about to go to bed together and then another Bond girl happens to walk in and she has yes. to go into the closet. Oh, yeah. Has to be there for two hours while Bond does it with another Bond girl uh, <laughs> who he incidentally... Uh, slapped around earlier in the movie when she oh, was yeah. upgrade with them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, once again, the gender politics are not exactly uh, progressive, to put it mildly. And yeah. it says a lot, I think, that the Bond girl who 
sort of makes the better impression is the one who's in a toxic relationship with a guy who has a gun fetish and gets off of <laughs> someone. Yeah. So not ideal. Yeah. I didn't know this actually, but Maud Adams who plays, uh, Scaramanga's Paramore, she actually, she actually played Octopussy, Octopussy in Octopussy. Yeah. I did not realize that. And I got to admit Octopussy. I don't even remember the movie. I saw it like a week ago. I don't remember it. <laughs> I oh really? Remember. I was going to ask you well because I remember you told me when you were watching it. And I just assumed you'd have more opinions about her because of that. But no. Yeah. No. <laughs> no yeah. Yeah. But, Octopussy yeah. was Octopussy was the first Russian movie I ever watched, and the reason why I have strong recollections of it is because a decent chunk of it is set in Germany. Oh. But, um, ah, yeah. There you go. Really? Yeah. Really not a memorable film. Well, I guess <laughs> I, my thoughts on the girls were that, like, I mean, I at least respected the fact that, like, they gave the 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 Maude Adams character's name is Andrea Anders and at least they gave her some kind of grand plan and allowed her to like you know fit into the larger narrative and that way even if they're kind of like you know retconning it in later on where she's like who do you think sent you the bullet in the first place it was like well actually that actually does make a sort of sense because right why I I remember rewatching the movie and going wait so he could have shot Bond but he didn't why did he shoot the other guy? I'm trying to remember. And then I remember, oh, yeah, because she's the one who brought him into the events. Yeah, I yeah, actually appreciate so it. It kind of made a little sense that, like, oh, that she at least had some kind of long game, even if she didn't pull it off. So I kind of like that. I agree that, like, Mary Goodnight is just, like, not a great character, and it's kind of unfortunate that she's just there to make eyes at Bond and be really bad at her job. But I actually got a kick out of, like, I, I, I mean, maybe it's bad that I laughed at it, but I kind of kind of thought the movie was funny and that it kind of upended expectations and that it kind of took out uh scaramanga way sooner than you thought and he took him out and it's like oh there's still like almost 20 minutes left in this movie and it's bond trying to figure out how to get off this island when he's like having to just work with this woman that's not very good at her job and i kind of got a kick out of that being like the actual last obstacle they have to overcome aside from knickknack trying to get at them on the boat uh i thought that was kind of funny it's like oh like they have a bigger they have another challenge after getting rid of like this really like great bond villain i thought I, I thought that was like a funny like i didn't expect scaramonga to die quite that early when i saw how much time was left in the movie so i kind of respected that it upended my expectations a little bit while at the same time recognizing she is like a very problematic character yeah i think that the performance at least is good, which is more than I can say for uh, what's her name from uh, Live and Let Die, Loria Hedry. Yeah, yeah, she's not a good act. I've seen her in other stuff. She's not that good. Oh, okay. um, but but Britt Eklund actually does a good job. Well, she did Britt she did Eklund. what she was asked to do very well, even if it wasn't like a great part that they had for her. I would say I would yeah. agree. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, Daniel, any other thoughts on uh, the man with the golden gun before we sign off? Yeah, I think we covered it pretty well. I think that it's one of the best Bond movies. I used to say that it is the best, but on this rewatch, the the more problematic elements um, and, you know, the inclusion of that goddamn sheriff, um, <laughs> it, it made me, I think, bring down the uh, where I put it in amongst the Bond rankings. We're not going to we don't have the time to do all 26 right now. But um, actually, uh, do you guys have rankings for the Moore era? No, I haven't watched enough, but before I let Fred answer that question, I will say one other thing, because I had asked you about the Kung Fu earlier, and I don't think I actually talked about it, was that, you know, it was just kind of funny, because we saw, uh, we saw Roger Moore, like, at least having to, like, learn some level of some kind of fighting to actually fight these uh, Asian actors, and 
I don't know if you had thoughts on those fights specifically, Daniel, because that was what I meant to ask you. But I, I actually got a kick out of it, and I thought it was kind of funny to like. I thought I, for a second I thought they were just going to kick his ass, and I kind of liked the the actual uh, contrast of him kind of holding his own, but like doing it in a very different manner against these people that were learning like showing more traditional kung fu and i just thought it was an interesting spin on that kind of fight and having some guy somehow uh not get his ass kicked but at the same time not exactly look like he knew what he was doing did you have any thoughts on that little digression of the movie which as i intimated at the beginning i i kind of liked and it didn't feel like it was making fun of that part of uh chinese culture yeah, uh, the action, like I said, I would have preferred it if it like leaned a little more Shaw Brothers with that flowery choreography that they're known for. Sure. Uh, but, you know, it's decent. It's decent action. I actually think on rewatch, there's like a there, you get a fight between two of the practitioners, not not including Bond. And I think it, it looks almost like Salat, like Pankok Salat, the Indonesian martial art featured in the Raid series. Um I don't know if that's the case, but honestly, the best fight scene in the movie is probably going to be the fight scene uh, that Bond has with a bunch of dudes in, uh, where was it, Egypt or something? Morocco? Uh, Beirut. Morocco at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, in Beirut. Yeah, he has like a fight scene uh, with like a bunch of dudes, and it's just this big-ass brawl. And it actually put a smile on my face watching it, especially after Live and Let Die. Um, You know, it's actually a very competent, well-staged, fight with you know good pacing with beats within the action honestly it's probably the best action sequence i mean outside from the scaramanga stuff in the movie sure but yeah the kung fu stuff is decent gotcha i wanted i just kind of wanted your thoughts on that because i actually got a kick out of that fred uh, i i sorry i cut, cut you off before you could answer daniel's question but do you have do you have a personal uh ranking of the roger moore movies that you had in mind ah <sighs> so it's been a long time since i've seen some of them so yeah. I'm not really sure how, how I would rank the middle ones. Uh, I would say that The Man with the Golden Gun, you could probably convince me that it's the best one of the Moore era. The only one that comes even close for me is For Your Eyes Only, and that's because it has some pretty solid skiing stuff in there. <laughs> um, and a really cool sidekick um, and kind of uh, some misleading stuff about who the actual villain is. So I Remind think me, who was, the, who was the sidekick in For Your Eyes Only? Uh... Colombo, uh, played by Topol. Oh Fiddler, yeah, Fiddle on the Roof. Yeah. Oh yeah, wow! Yeah, yeah. I did not. I, I don't think I've seen that one, and I'm I'm very familiar with Fiddle on the Roof. So that makes me very curious to actually go mm-hmm. back and watch that one. Yeah, and uh, the other guy uh, is actually the guy who might be the villain or might not be the villain is uh, Julian Glover, who is Grandmaster Pycelle. Oh, mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. The villain is also the I villain. Remember, in the last I remember Crusade. that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, so that's probably the only other one I would put right on top. As for my two least favorite ones, Live and Let Die, and that's why I groaned earlier, Daniel. <laughs> I absolutely hate Moonraker. To ah, me, it's wrong. Uh, <laughs> so if, if, Live and, if Live and Let Die is an attempt to cash in on black exploitation movies, then Moonraker is a shameless attempt to cash in on the Star Wars craze. Oh, yeah. They were actually, if I'm not mistaken, uh, supposed to make, uh, they're supposed to release For Your Eyes Only first, but then they ended up moving going with moonraker because they wanted to cash in i think at the end of the spy who loved me they say james bond will appear next in for your eyes only and then star wars came out that year and they're like no we're doing moonraker no we're doing moonraker i Mm. love moonraker um so my ranking would be at the bottom live and let die worst of the franchise hate it (laughs) uh then for your eyes only and octopussy they're not bad bad but like i don't find them too memorable 
View to the Kill, I just saw, so it would probably fall in with the others. But I think that there's some fun stuff. The Henchman, and of course, uh, you got Christopher Walken as the villain. You know, good stuff. Moonraker, I'm sorry. Love it. I love Jaws. <laughs> I love the space action. I It, it carries on that strong B-movie tradition running through the more movies. It does uh, that. I, I will give you that. If you're into then, it, I'm sure. And then I used to have The Spot, The Man with the Golden Gun, as the best Bond movie. I think I'm going to have to knock it down just a bit in favor of The Spy Who Loved Me. The Spy Who Loved Me is really, really good. Hmm. I love The Spy Who Loved Me. I think I might have seen that one back when I like originally watched a lot of a lot of the, some of the older ones. But again, I'm not as well versed in these as you guys, so it's interesting to kind of hear you guys talk about them. I'm, I'd be curious to see that one since Daniel said he really liked it, and I mean, I really. Very curious to see Topol and anything other than Fedor in the room because I don't think I've watched him in uh, mm-hmm. anything else. So uh, there you have it. If you wanted a little bit of a guide to go listen to watch some of the Roger Moore stuff uh, before we sign off, Daniel, and uh, you got to be a little more brief than we were on the Kung Fu podcast. But yeah, uh, no, no. Do you have any other streaming recommendations? Just things you've watched in the last few weeks you really like that you want to recommend to? I'm going to give two recommendations. Yeah. two recommendations. One for Live and Let Die. One relating to this one. Uh, for Live and Let Die, the same year, 1973, you had a movie come out called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. It's a movie about a black man who joins the CIA and then uses what he learns to start a black revolution. It was based on a novel intended to start the black revolution, didn't take. This movie was actually suppressed by the FBI upon huh. release because they did. They were afraid of quote-unquote rioting in the streets upon its release, wow. uh, you know, and uh, it didn't get a home video release until 2005. It's in the National Film Registry. It's a powerful movie that certainly relates to the events of this past couple weeks very strongly. Lawrence Cook is, gives one of the finest performances I've seen in any film ever, and it's one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, and as for... Uh, the Man with the Golden Gun, I got to recommend the movie that I was watching just before we started, that I finished just before we started recording, uh, The Dragon Lives Again. The Dragon Lives Again is a movie about Bruce Lee going into the underworld after his death. It's one of the many movies after Bruce Lee died that exploited his death in horrible ways. But at least here you get a little bit of fun. You get a little bit of fun because he shows up in the underworld and then has to fight against a bunch of these figures that are trying to take over the underworld. He fights the Godfather. Uh, they even use the Godfather music. Uh, they, he, fights, <laughs> he fights. He fights. He fights Zatoichi, the blind swordsman from the Japanese film series. He fights Dracula. He fights Clint Eastwood, uh, aka the man with the no name. He fights a man. He fights Emmanuel, the seventies French softcore porn character from a very popular series of movies in the sixties and seventies. The okay. Exorcist from The Exorcist. Uh, the one-armed swordsman Popeye shows up. Um, Kane from uh, the Kung Fu, the Kung Fu TV show. And it's 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 not a good movie. It's not a <laughs> good movie. But God damn it. I love this. It is if that if that description gets you at all kind of interested, you'll probably get something out of it. Very fun. Well, there you go. Daniel gave you some good recommendations if you wanted something similar to either of the movies we just discussed more in depth. Uh, Fred, anything you've watched in the last couple of weeks that you want to direct people to? Sure, I have two recommendations, which will not be piggybacking off of our two movies that we just discussed. Though uh, the first thing I want to, so the first thing I want to plug is uh, the uh, Turner Classic Movie Library that's available on HBO Max now. Yes. So you have a ton of classics on there that have never really been available for streaming before. Uh, lots of Best Picture Oscar winners uh, from the 30s and 40s that are kind of difficult to find online. Um, I would say it. 
it's a little bit of a different uh, selection than on the Criterion channel, but also a lot of older movies that uh, you might not have really seen if you have only stuck to uh, more recent newer releases. So yeah. I would highly recommend that. If you have an HBO Now account, it should have been converted by now. If you have HBO Go, I'm not sure how that's going to work. It depends, on your, it depends on your cable provider. It's a okay. short answer. Okay. Um, the second thing, since we're already speaking about HBO and a new miniseries starring Mark Ruffalo called I Know This Much Is True, where he plays a set of twin brothers. Uh, one of them is a paranoid schizophrenic uh, who cuts his own hand off and then uh, has to go to a mental hospital and his increasingly frantic brother is trying to get him out. A fantastic uh, supporting cast of... Uh, Really strong female performers, uh, including Archie Punjabi, uh, Catherine Hahn, Juliette Lewis, um, and Mark Ruffalo, who is obviously known primarily these days for smashing things in the Avengers movies and spoiling the latest Avengers <laughs> movies on uh, television. Uh, really fantastic performance. He plays both uh, twins, both the one who has schizophrenia and his brother who's trying to get him out. Very sad, very heavy stuff, but that guy can act, and he's going to win awards for this. Uh, it's six episodes. Last one is going to air on Sunday. I highly recommend it. All right. I hadn't actually gotten into that yet, but it's, I'm glad to hear someone else uh, can vouch for it, so maybe I'll give it a shot soon. Uh, I'll second what Fred said about HBO Max. It has a great collection. Uh, I didn't love anything I've watched since the last podcast I did on it, but I was only a couple things. So instead, I will just uh, I'll recommend uh, – I, I, I recommend uh, – shoot, did I, did I just lose what I was going to talk about? Uh, well, I, shoot, I thought I had something else in my head that I don't know. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll recommend the, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, I watched that on Netflix, and I, I was a little intimidated by it because I it's like three hours long, and I don't particularly love Westerns consistently. I sometimes do. I sometimes don't. To, to start a three-hour one was very intimidating, but I would say like 90% earns its runtime. And if you're so if you're if you're looking for something to watch on Netflix and you want to watch something a little older and that's considered a little bit more of just a classic from a different time and you haven't seen any old Clint Eastwood stuff, it's not a bad place to start. I would say that. So that's that actually take up plenty of your time. And as I kind of mentioned to Daniel earlier, I watched Batman 66 or Batman from 1966. It's not called Batman 66. But if you're like me and you're kind of weird and that you hadn't really watched anything, any Batman content from before Christopher Nolan and. I didn't really have a real reason for that. It's just I never found a lot of the Batman movies from the 80s and 90s all that accessible on a streaming service. I would have watched them. And now, like, most of them are all on HBO Max, if you're curious. Uh, I think they're on Vudu also. At least I know that, like, a couple weeks ago you could rent, like, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin – one of the best Batman movies ever made. Oh, yeah, you, you, you can rent them anywhere. I just meant as far as, like, on a streaming service, like, where you don't have to, like, rent them. Like oh, no, Amazon no, it's free. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. It's Voodoo oh, Free. Oh, okay, Voodoo Free. Yeah, Voodoo uh, Free, yeah. And, it's just streaming with ads. Yeah, right. So maybe they, they, like, I know, like, for certain things, like, HBO Max, like, kind of time some certain deals to end right when they launch, kind of like they did. They had a lot of shows on Amazon that went off as soon as HBO Max launched. So I don't know, but, like... All the other Batmans from like the 80s and 90s are on HBO Max. The 1966 movie is not, but I watch it. And like, if you've only seen like Christopher Nolan on as far as Batman movies, and then you watch Batman from 1966, it's like jarringly amazing for just how different it is and how it like has colors uh, and stuff like that. So 
I, I, I will recommend that, and I'll watch for something a little more light and fun, and which is weird to say about a, about a Batman movie. Like I said, if you've only seen more recent stuff. I'm telling you, man. I'm tired of serious Batman. Yeah. The next Batman, we need to get um, – uh, what's his name? Billy Eichner. Billy well, Eichner oh, needs to be the next Batman. Well, you got, you, I'm sorry. I've been sorry. saying it well, for sorry. years. Sorry, you got to get through Robert Pattinson Batman first, which I think will still yeah. be good because Robert Pattinson is good and so is Matt Reeves. But uh, watch Batman from 1966. Even if you have to pay three ninety nine for it, it's worth it. Uh, watch Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, Fred, uh, if people want to follow you on Letterboxd, how can they do that? Uh, yes, please do follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, the name is Fred Kolb. That's F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B for a bunch of reviews, uh, for Bond movies, new releases, once we start getting new releases again, and presumably a bunch of classics from the HBO Max library. So stay tuned for that. Give me a follow. Yeah, Daniel, do you want people to follow you on Letterboxd or anywhere else? Eh, but uh, if you do, if you do want to, Felonious Funk, okay. Felonious Funk on Letterboxd. As usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast Twitter is Rewind Movie Pod. Podcast Gmail, the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. So give us any feedback there. If you have any suggestions on old stuff you want us to revisit, please do that because it looks like we'll probably be doing this for at least a few more months because who knows when we're getting a new movie again in theaters. We'll be talking about a couple of new Netflix releases, though, over the next couple of weeks because Daniel will be joining us to talk about The Five and talk a little bit about Spike Lee's homography in the context of what our country is currently going through in the next week or so. And Fred will maybe be back for an old movie, but we'll definitely be back with our friend Elijah to talk about uh, both On Her Majesty's Secret Service and also uh, maybe the Timothy Dalton movies. I think we're gonna all going to squeeze that into one since they're kind of like their own little corner of the Bond universe in some way because those guys didn't do a ton with License to Kill and Living Daylights on top of that. So everyone stay tuned for all of that, and we'll see you next time.